Okay, let's get uh, four chairs up here. Yes, yes, yes. I had four copies of that. I had four copies of that book sent to me from friends who wanted to convert me. And I wrote all four of them back, and I said, "I will write you in October." And if it hasn't come, I'm not going to read the book. And if it has come, I won't have to. <laughs> so I think we can dispense with that view. But we'll give you three points for effort on that one. <laughs> now, uh, for those who have a question, you're going to have to. We don't have all the questions from one group. So uh, let's say the first person here will have a question for this brother, and then the second one, this brother, the third one, this brother, the fourth one, that brother. And that way we won't get loaded in. And when you fellows are asked a question, you come up here and pick this up and talk into this mic. When people ask the questions, talk in that mic. Is that all right, George? Okay, who is first? Anybody? Here comes one. You have a question for? All right. Well, you can take your pick. Well, I'll take the progressive premillennialist also. Uh, I, I read in God's word that all the promises of God are in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20, and uh, in Galatians 3.7 that God's promises are to the spiritual children of Abraham. But I guess the point I want to make with you at this time, does not the New Testament declare that the Old Testament is but shadows, types, and examples? Why must the Old Testament be taken literal if it is but shadows, types, and examples? Okay, I, I guess my simple answer to that would be that uh, I would back off and generally say nothing is a must except that, that which the test, text in the proper her, her, hermeneutic seems to demand. And so that when you have, as I try to point out in that passage, that nothing works but a literal nation of Israel and that it does seem to be consistent with the premillennial position that we're presenting that there is a people of God and this is the already not yet position that has been elucidated that that is consistent Israel is an elect of God an elect people of God they are going to be uh, saved the same way They'll be brought into the kingdom the same way by the blood of Christ. But as we've been laboring to point out, that does not obliterate all distinctions between the two peoples. Uh, how about the fact that God's promises are to the spiritual children of Abraham, not to national Abraham? Well, I think that my, uh, again, a simple answer to that would be that when we talk about, and perhaps Fred could speak to this, when we talk about the all Israel of the end time, my understanding of that would be the spiritual seed of Abraham in toto. In other words, that, that end times people that are converted, that this massive work is done, that is the spiritual seed of Abraham. But at that particular end time, it represents all of Israel. National? National Israel. So you, you believe there are eternal promises to the unredeemed? National. No, I didn't say that. At that point, they are redeemed. That's our whole point. That's a premillennial scheme and the already not yet worked out to the end, that national Israel, the all Israel there, is a redeemed Israel, okay, thank which you. then has an impact upon the nations. While you're up here, the now not yet, that's what you're saying. 
I, I understand the difference between the already not yet. But. No, okay, but the now there is a kingdom established. Yes. Is that a literal kingdom? It is a... <laughs> it is the, the Lord is reigning and ruling over my life yes that's very little so it is a spiritual kingdom it yes but I would say that is not spiritualizing and that's and my the, point and this not yet kingdom is not going to be a spiritual kingdom but it's going to be a physical kingdom on this earth which is also spiritual Without thinking it all through this, into the ramifications, I would say yes. I think no, I would what, what I'm trying to say is it sounds to me like you're saying there's a spiritual kingdom now and there's a physical, quote, literal kingdom in the future. I'm saying that there will be a physical aspect of the spiritual kingdom that's already existing. And it'll be in the form of a national Israel. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Oops. Next. He didn't want to spiritualize that, but he did realize it. Uh, we will let that go by. Go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> or I, I guess Fred would be fine to be answer this question. Any, any one of them I would be interested in answering this. You know, our Lord did speak of the destruction of Jerusalem. And I uh, would take it that the destruction of Jerusalem really was the end then of uh, Israel at that time because Israel is its religion there's no Israel apart from its religion uh, apart from its faith from what I could see if uh, Israel was actually destroyed in 70 AD uh, you know can we possibly imagine that there is an Israel today uh, is part of the question and then I guess also I'd like to you know for the answer is there any significance then from a premillennial position to the destruction of Jerusalem, or is it just a incidental uh, historic fact? It's not incidental at all, and I think Jesus speaks of one in terms of the other very often. And again, I sound like a one-string banjo. We must take in all of the evidence, not just half of it. And when, like... Gary was speaking here today just a few minutes ago about the present realization of the promises. I say yes, that's true, but that's half the evidence. When like Lloyd, you present something that sure seems to look like something that hasn't happened yet, you say yes, that's right too. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes, that had significance in the prophecy, it most certainly did. Is that the end of it? No because the language itself seems to go beyond it. Uh, I keep saying it, but we have to take in all of the evidence. It will not do in any argument to take one half of the data and build your case on that. We have to take all that's relevant, relevant and build it on that. Am I allowed to go any further than the question that was spe specifically asked? Who said that? <laughs> Randy, you're in the Al Mill quarters when we get home. <laughs> um, when, when I was up here earlier, a few minutes ago, I, I said that this is a very comfortable position. And the two guys that followed me illustrated exactly what I said. 
Lloyd got up, showed the eschatological significance of a prophecy. Gary got up, showed the present realization of a prophecy. And it's exactly what I just said. Yes, that's it. We must take both. Now, it's funny to see who's on whose side at which time in this debate. Our brother Ramsey over here then was on my side with the Israel question. And then, of course, he's against me with the Amil on the question of the order of events. Uh, I appreciate his statement that it has to come down to some passages with rigor. And I think uh, this should be maybe an issue that we should address tomorrow. Maybe somebody can bring it up in questioning. What is the outline of events in relation to this as final aspect of the kingdom and the, and the return of Christ? I've already said in brief that Matthew, or Revelation 19 and 20 reads most naturally with those continuative chi's right through the chapter division is of course something that's artificial, but John writes this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens straight through the chapter division. And to interrupt those continuative chi's I think demands the burden of proof on that side. Also, 1 Corinthians 15 I think again is a parallel situation to Revelation 20. Granted, it does not mention the thousand years specifically. To me again, that's a secondary issue. If the thousand years are figurative, of a hundred years. That's still a secondary issue. The point is the order of events in the chronology, chronological sequence. In 1 Corinthians 15 you have Christ being raised, then those who are His at His coming, and then the end when He has finished putting down all other opposition. That is a premillennial scheme that is exactly parallel to Revelation chapter 20. Zechariah 14, the passage that I referred to as a silver age, follows chapter 13, which seems very clear or earlier in chapter 14, seems to be language speaking of the second coming. And again, you have that chronological sequence, coming kingdom. And maybe that's more that should be developed in tomorrow's arguments. Okay, it looks like there's no other questions. You have to come up yeah. here. It, it seems to me when, when Fred talks about now, not yet, it, it seems to me th there's, there's some things being said different ways or something, but it seems to me what I hear is now there is the kingdom, meaning the fulfillment of the prophecy made to David and so on, and we are in that kingdom. Yes, I would, I would agree to that, but there's not the manifestation. Pulled. But that is a spiritual kingdom. That is not the, the millennial reign, the, the right. earthly kingdom. So, so what I hear is we have a spiritual kingdom and then we have a physical kingdom right. later. Exactly. The burden of proof is not, it seems to me on my side, the burden of proof is for you to take the New Testament scriptures and show where the New Testament scriptures delineate that clear division and where any of the apostles show to the Jews in any way, shape, or form the hope of that earthly millennium land promise in the future. That's what we're saying. We're saying that, that, that when, when you have in the Old Testament, you have the temple, and the church is the temple of the living God. You have a priesthood that is to be forever, but it means as it finds its fulfillment. There is a Sabbath which is forever, but it finds its fulfillment. Every one of the things that was promised to the nation of Israel, that they would be a people forever, that the Sabbath would be forever, the priesthood would be forever, every single one of those things very clearly in the New Testament and even in the prophets of the Old Testament had an end. The priesthood has an end, but it isn't canceled, it has a fulfillment. Is the land the only one of those things that is the exception? 
Or is that also in the same category? Are all of those things in the same category? And what we say is, yes, that's what we mean by spiritualizing. And we say the burden of proof is in the New Testament to show where that land promise is still in effect. Or is it like the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ? Okay, question? Yes, this is for uh, Brother Gary George. Uh, I've been uh, hearing more and more Calvinistic brethren of both Amill and postmillennial stripes who have been uh, very, I think, impressive in their uh, defense of preteristic views of much of the scripture. And uh, it seems to cut out a lot of the confusion on viewing end times and, and so forth. And we already heard from uh, Brother Ramsey that he takes a position against much of that. And you being an amillennialist, I was just wondering what your positions were on that issue. I think I'd probably be in the same category as this, Brother. I, I might uh, uh, label myself as being semi-preteristic. I, I see in Revelation, unlike a dispensationalist, things that were currently taking place in the times in which John was writing. I think giving the book of Revelation an early date, that is earlier than 70 AD, would lend itself to more of a preteristic interpretation. And the history uh, taking place at the time prior to 70 AD would allow one to interpret things taking place in Revelation rather uh, in a futuristic way in a present way taking place. And the very fact that John himself, 1 verse 9, is on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus seems to be indicative of what John is going to write about in the whole book. That's the conflict of evil versus righteousness. That's sort of a summation of the whole book. The saints are being persecuted. In John in the Gospel, Jesus' words how he tells us about the tribulation period. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace, but in the world ye shall have tribulation. And so John is one who personally is in tribulation, and he's writing about tribulation. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to say about it. Matthew 24, I see some things that certainly were fulfilled uh, prior or at 70 AD, but at this point at least, I can't go so far to say that they have been exhausted. But there's just one other little point I want to add. Oh, yeah. I know it's late. But in regards to the reign of Christ, I, as I was just thinking about this, this might be just an interesting observation. This brother here would not, correct, well, you don't have to correct me if I'm wrong, because I may not be, but if I am, <laughs> I'm contradicting myself, aren't I? But from the post-millennial standpoint, there's no reign of Christ taking place right now. From this brother's standpoint, Lloyd, at least his position, okay, I know there are different degrees of post-millennialism, but the view of a post-millennialist is the reign of Christ takes place in the millennium, which is the golden age prior to his second coming. No? The reign will be after. Well, the point that I made was that there's no present reign of Christ taking place now. Christ as, as David's son and the millennium. 
But my understanding has been that when he begins to put all enemies under his feet, that that's in the time prior to the millennium. He's beginning right now, starting back there where he. Where he uh, well, okay, my point is defeated, but let me let me skip over to Lloyd. <laughs> Lloyd wouldn't allow for a mediatorial reign of Christ other than in a faint way in, in, in that, like he said, Christ is ruler over my life, he's my Lord. But there's no current reign of Christ taking place prophetically. And Fred and I, I think, would be closer together. Well, I thought he answered it himself when he was asked. Would you see a difference in the reigns of Christ presently now the, versus the way yeah, I do? I, I would be careful, as, and I think we pretty much have hammered that one, that I wouldn't be a, uh, would not be a classical uh, dispensationalist and uh, seeing God as, a, or Christ as a, having one people and not seeing a great deal of distinctions and uh, seeing really the, the, that uh, the historical uh, premillennialist view and the Progressive dispensationalists, as I understand it, are pra practically the same. I think you better Ex find another argument. Except on the uh, tribulation issues and so forth. Well, I, anyway, I just think that that's sort of a key issue, is how do we understand Christ's present mediatorial reign? And I think there are some shades of differences here. Well, I was very encouraged when I heard you say what you did. What you did is We have come to what we believe many of us from different uh, background. Uh, there are people here who have come to understand the doctrines of grace out of a GARB background that was, uh, they were born and raised in dispensationalism and come from a <coughs> Baptist background. Uh, I have a good friend who, uh, whose father was a uh, landmark Baptist preacher and today his father won't even talk to him except to say hello when they go visit, absolutely refuses to discuss the scriptures in any sense. So if someone comes from a landmark background into the uh, truth of sovereign grace, or somebody comes from another background, I was born and raised Presbyterian, and, and I came to understand the doctrines of grace without any understanding of Baptist theology and was an Arminian to the core. I was converted on Tuesday, given a Schofield Reference Bible on Thursday, in Larkin's notes the following Monday, and went to a dispensational Bible school. And that's all I knew. And as true as I stand here, I graduated from Bible school believing that the, that the history of the church went from the Apostle Paul to uh, uh, Martin Luther to Billy Sunday to Billy Graham. I knew nothing about the Puritan era, absolutely nothing. And I may have not been listening, but I graduated from Bible school with the idea that you believed the Bible or you were a liberal. That meant all mill or post mill. And that all mills and post mills were liberals. That's what I believed when I got out of Bible school. When I read Bettner's book on the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination and ate it up, and we got 25 copies from him, and he sent a copy of his other books, and one of them was in postmillennialism. And I didn't read it because I was afraid he might convince me. <laughs> because he was so good in the other one, and I'd rather die than be a post-mill. So, so the, the backgrounds from which we come, I think, 
uh, has a degree of shading on how we look at things, whether or not we believe it or not. When I came to the Doctrines of Grace, 50, no, not 50, probably 40 years ago, and Rod Connors is the pastor of the church that I was the pastor of then, I did not know a Calvinistic pastor. There wasn't any within 100 miles of Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. I knew not a one. I went seven years without ever preaching outside of my own church one time because there were no Calvinists. And Mr. Herndine, who published uh, Arthur Pink's books, came into our congregation, and it was through him that we got rounded out. Today, within a radius of 100 miles of Lewisburg, there'll probably be, how many, 20 churches that believe in the doctrines of grace. So when I came to the Doctrine of Grace, the only books that I had to read were written by Presbyterians. And I read them and gobbled them up. And the first thing I knew, I saw them criticizing dispensationalism. And I threw dispensationalism out the window. And I bought covenant theology along with Calvinism as a package deal. <laughs> and did not realize that I was buying a package deal. And then when we started to rethink the thing and go back and look up all the references of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we expected to find the, the references on baptism to be totally irrelevant. We didn't expect the references on the law and the covenants to be irrelevant, but we found that same thing. So my experience with, with coming from where we did with nothing but Presbyterian uh, backgrounds to read, some of these brothers here would have a totally different background than that. And I think that has helped to shape some of the ways we think. The other thing I want to mention is, in coming here, uh, I really didn't understand and don't understand yet totally the, the postmodernism or the preterist view that is growing, and we'll probably deal with that within the next couple of years at the Bunyan Conference. And that, that's a movement that has to be dealt with. And it seems to me that one of the things that the destruction of Jerusalem, as somebody brought up here, there's a difference between the end of Judaism and, and the end of Israel. <laughs> That's two different things. Uh, and I think what's being argued here is you, you don't end Israel, <laughs> but you can end with the Judaism that crucified our Lord and the whole destruction of Jerusalem and all of that can be a finality. And thing. Now, your question. Yes. Um, is it going to be to him? No, I think it's going to be towards the progressive dispensationalist, Brother Lloyd. <laughs> Um, the question I've got uh, concerns basically the principles of hermeneutics, just trying to understand what the Bible says. Now, I appreciate a lot of what's been discussed here in the last couple of days because uh, there are some, some things that we just don't quite understand, and there are things that seem to indicate that there are things otherwise than what I believe. But when I, um, through the last uh, several years of my trying to understand what the Bible says and trying to be true to God's word, um, I found that there's one thing that has kind of steered me away from dispensationalism, whether it's progressive or, you know, old school dispensationalism, has been the fact that I can find no warrant for uh, the uh, use of dispensationalism the way that it's defined as a dispensationalist would define it. And I was wondering if possibly you could answer that. It hasn't been brought up, and I thought it might be a good uh, question for you to tackle. Thank you. Okay, so if I understand... The, the question would be a point of clarity about what is a traditional dispensational definition. Right. No, where, where do you get the biblical What is essential to use the word dispensationalism? Where's the biblical warrant for the yes? Well, yeah, I, I, think I, I think I understand that. Um, but may I ask a question from perhaps everybody? 
Um, it's my understanding that Hodge and Burkhoff use the terms dispensational quite freely. Is that not correct? I, I in terms of that term? Yeah, you are right that they did. But I think that, see, what I feel that's happened is that the, the word dispensation, as, from my study anyway, that the, it's a noun and it's a verb. And the way that it's used in the Bible is, is in both cases, a, a verb being, uh, for instance, as the dispensation of supplies. Uh, when it's used as a noun, it's used in the, in the context of you being the dispenser of those, those displies, uh, supplies. Excuse me. <laughs> so what I'm saying is where, you know, like Schofield's definition was that uh, man would uh, be responsible in a certain period of time and an age according to the revelation that God had revealed to him mm -hmm. in his word. But that's not defined by the Bible. That's something that Schofield made up. And so I'm saying where's, right. the, where's the biblical warrant for, for using sure. the word in that way? Okay. I would not use it in that way. Okay, so that's what I've been trying to say too, is that I'm not agreeing with the seven dispensations or the five or whatnot and, and the way that they have traditionally been defined. So what, do you, what would you do then as a result of that when you come to certain passages like the Sermon on the Mount that traditionally old dispensationalists have said it does not apply to Christianity today? I would say they're wrong. Yeah. And, and again, I don't know, I don't get tripped over the word, up over the word dispensationalist. And this is what right. I said earlier. These titles tend to not mean a whole lot right. at all. Um, and this is why I said there are many respects in which uh, a, a historic premillennialist would more re represent my position, except at a couple points, but then you have to hammer out what they are. So I guess I would just answer as far as uh, what is dispensationalism, I, uh, I would not agree with the rigid distinctions that were made in the past where Israel was saved differently, Israelites, than, than the church is, is saved by the blood of Christ. I just don't hold to that. I don't know if that's a satisfaction. What, what are the things that you would say that are absolutely essential for somebody to understand and believe your position? What are some of the specific things? For instance, the relationship of Israel to the church or yes. the future, whatever, whatever. Just yeah, and that's, and that's why I, one of, the, one of the absolute distinctions would be to hold that there is a place for a national Israel. And that's why I, uh, after Fred having um, um, elucidated, I said on those other points, I brought up the issue of the hermeneutic and that a dispensationalist, I think, I would feel free to say, a dispensation would be one that would hold to a hermeneutic that would avoid, as I've suggested, all of this that is called spiritualizing of the text. That they would still hold absolutely that the Bible uses symbols and that you must come to prophetic texts and, and, uh, and come to the point of understanding what is symbolic and what is not. Uh, so I don't find, and we pointed this out, there are a lot of similarities going on here. And I don't know, I guess uh, the national Israel, a place for it, that God is uh, winding up history with the conversion of the Jews as a people of God who will then turn around and impact the, the world in a salvation sense, that the world will be saved in regard to nations of people, that those boundaries are still there. I believe these are uh, things that are associated with dispensational theology as it's been named. Okay, now before you go. Sure. Uh, th this text, is, is this, would this be one of the texts that you would use? Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Um, not necessarily because Good. I haven't <laughs> researched it enough. All right. I got out of that one, didn't I? Now before you go, uh, you are saying there's going to be some Jewish people, whether it's all of them or a nation or all of the ones living at that time, are going to be converted. 
No, I'm not saying that. I'll be more specific. I'm saying that there's a national conversion of okay. Jews. I'm not, I agree, agree, my wife is Jewish. Do you agree with him that that is going to take place in this church age? It's going to be through the preaching of the gospel and these people are going to be baptized in the one body of Christ and are going to be part of the one true church. Yes. Okay. I would. Yes, sir. Um, th this is for Brother Lloyd again. Hey, now, wait a minute. Does anybody <laughs> here got any questions for him? <laughs> you must have convinced them or confused them. <laughs> Go ahead. You got one for Brother Ramsey. So you go ahead. Yeah. This is for Brother Lloyd. This sure. is passing to do with the question about spiritualizing. Okay. Um, in John 6, um, Jesus speaks in verse 53 as he's, as he's talking to these Jews. Uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And we all know the passage. Uh, my question is, um, is it literal? Is it symbolic? Or is it spiritual? Well, see, I'm, I'm a bit confused. I don't, know, I don't know why this point hasn't been made yet. A literalist does not hold that everything that you read is literal. Jesus said, I'm the door. He's not a door. But there is an obvious symbolism present when he says, I am the door. And it lies. Maybe this should be said. Symbolism means nothing without an immediate substance right under it. And that's really the point that I was making in the other area. What is Israel here if it's not national Israel? I search high and low in vain to find what in the world the substance is underneath that. If in, back in, in uh, Ezekiel 6, uh, 36 and 37, when he says, I am the door, in the context of that passage, it hits you in the face as if you ran into the door, what he means. I am the way of salvation. No one is going to come into salvation except they pass through me, which of course means all of his work. So uh, we, I think we need to back away from this issue of uh, what would be called crass literalism. I don't know that anybody holds to that. Crass literalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a crass literalist, but I'm saying, and I'll repeat it, I think spiritualizing is coming to a text and not identifying properly what is symbol and saying that it's symbol when it's really not a symbol when it is still now, again that's a matter of interpretation he's not a crass literalist he's a republican <laughs> what 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 is is being said is that that the the dispensation of you says that you take every word in its natural meaning, unless the context forces you to take it otherwise. And obviously there are passages, the ones mentioned others, that you, you can't take anything other than a symbolical meaning. And that's not a betrayal in any sense of one's hermeneutic. His hermeneutic is you take it natural unless the context forces you to take it otherwise. Okay. Yes? I just have one question. Um, you mentioned that there would not be an earth in for to have a millennium on, and therefore there could not be a millennium after the Lord's return. What about the, the verse that follows that tells us that there's going to be a new heaven, new heavens, and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness? Uh, if you remember, my definition of my position was that. Uh, it means that there will be a millennium on this present earth under the agency of the, um, of the church. Now, it seems to me 
that of all of the descriptive material in the scriptures concerning what I believe to be the millennium, such as men shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea, and then there is also other passages that imply death during the millennium. And if, if we talk about, if they talk about Revelation chapter 20, delineating certain aspects of the millennium, primarily the binding of Satan, which then having his influence out of the way allows the gospel to flourish like it never has before. And then at the end of that period of time in, in, uh, in Revelation 20, it says he is loosed a little season. Now then, if Satan is loosed a little season, and if the millennium occurs in the new heaven and new earth, then you've got that new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and perfection, wherein God has finally brought about all of the... He has fixed everything at that point. There's not ever going to be another sin committed in his new heaven and new earth. Sin is not going to enter into it. Death is not going to enter into it. It's all... It's all finished, and he has brought about the final and ultimate and total victory that he started out to do. And so, consequently, I could not put um, the millennium in the new heaven and new earth in as much as the scripture says Satan will be loosed af after the millennium. Therefore, it couldn't be in the new heaven and new earth. But would you, see a, would you see a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, on the new earth wherein dwells righteousness? Well, I, the... The information we have of that is in chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, and it pictures Christ being the light of that eternal city, and that um, I don't understand all that I know about that, but uh, surely that his will will be supreme and, and uh, foremost in the hearts of all of those who occupy that setting. Okay, okay, brother, you're going to be the last one. And who do you want to talk to? Uh, I don't want to betray my ignorance, but just some simple questions. That, that who do you want to see? Any dispensationalist, either one really wants to They're respond. They're both the same, they just call themselves different names. That's right. <laughs> The very elementary questions, and thank you for bearing with me. Just thinking about the regathering of Israel uh, and the possibilities of that now when they say, for instance, there are more Jews in New York City than there, there is in the land of Israel now, that baffles me. Is there supposed to be some great exodus from all points of the earth for these to go back? Plus, with the land, I don't understand Israel recently recognizing the nation of Palestine, and will they, in a future date, get that land back? And uh, I think there was one more. That, that, that might be uh, enough right for now. Okay, thank you. Um, first thing I think should point out is what you've already said, and this is, this is not an objection, this is a question. And the question was based on what you don't understand, and my answer is going to be, the same. I don't understand all of those details either. Also, also on, on the last part, the thing with the, with the, the, with the Israelites going back, and the, how are they ever going to have these, uh, these priests recognized again with the genealogies long gone and disappeared? Okay. How are they so far as, 
Okay, the question was, what about the priest, the re, re, uh, institution of the priesthood and all of that, and the, how to establish the genealogy to know who's a priest and all of that? Uh, first question, what about all the Jews in New York City? How are they going to get back there? And what about the land you don't understand? I don't understand either. I don't know. That kind of detail I'm not aware of being given to us in the Bible. I don't claim to know it. I'm happy to admit some ignorance on that. What I do see is a, a plenty of evidence that there is some land aspect left, and that's what I mentioned earlier in the lectures this morning, that it is gratuitous, it is intellectually dishonest to dismiss things like reclining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the temple, the Mount of Olives, uh, different things like that, to simply dismiss that out of hand and then stand up and say the New Testament is silent on the question of the land. That's gratuitous argument. You've got to deal with these things first. There are implications to those kinds of terminology. How it all works out, I don't know. So far as the priesthood, I don't know that either, and I'm not going to get into it. I don't know that the, the priesthood is going to be reinstituted. That's a secondary issue to the millennial question. I may be a premillennialist and take either side of that issue. And that is always thrown up. When I announced that I'm a premillennialist last year, a bunch of people jumped me before the week was over, and the majority of them came to me with just that argument. How can you believe in the reinstitution of the priesthood? I don't know that I do. And I didn't say that I did. That is not an essential part of the millennial question. That's a secondary issue that must be dealt with later, and we don't have to confuse those issues. And I'm very tired. I don't have any more answers left. I had three questions for you. And I shall see him face to face.